Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode 20, and today we'll be reading The Essential William James, edited by my guest this month, John Shook. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. Thanks so much for being here. John Shook is a lecturer in philosophy at Bowie State University. His interests include American intellectual history, philosophical naturalism, political philosophy, political philosophy among others, and he has authored and edited more than a dozen books and articles in academic journals. So tell me a little bit about yourself, John, and how did you come to be interested in philosophy and specifically in pragmatism and, and this kind of stuff? Uh, well, sure. I had a very uh, ordinary uh, philosophy education, uh, took courses that would have been expected back when I was a, a student in the late 80s and into the 90s. Uh, you would have categorized me upon graduation as a well-educated, you know, well, well-versed in the dominant paradigms in uh, universities in America, basically analytic philosophy. I was educated probably by most of my professors to join the cadres that were swelling departments back then. Uh, to work on very narrow subjects in epistemology, a little bit of metaphysics, as long as it was compatible with philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, uh, philosophy of science, a kind of naturalism benignly reigns, uh, ranging from, you know, scientism, science gets everything right and reality can't be different, all the way to just sort of a yeah, we're animals crawling around on the surface of the earth, uh, uh, doing the best we can. But I soon gravitated towards pragmatism. Maybe it's my temperament, but I found Charles Peirce, William James, and John Dewey to not only have anticipated and sidestepped all the paradoxes, puzzles, and pitfalls that analytic philosophy uh, always got itself into, but I really liked its constructive aspects. It really tried to say more about the meaning of life and how society should work and how to make democracy better and, you know, sort of the big questions like, why are we here and what should we do about it? Got it. Yeah, that resonates a little bit. So I was actually a philosophy major way back in the day, and I don't know too much about pragmatism, but I definitely do like the idea of talking about things that might matter instead of perhaps uh, whether chairs or tables exist. <laughs> right. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what pragmatism is and also about who William James is? Sure. So William James was part of the first generation of pragmatists, along with a very good friend. They were both at Harvard, Charles Peirce, and they were members of a little metaphysical club as they styled themselves. And this was a time when American philosophy was trying to free itself from theology, all the colleges, Harvard included, was still, you know, supposed to teach young men at the time, and men only, uh, how to be good Christian citizens, complete with Protestantism to match. And it's, it's not that they were uh, interested in abandoning religion, but they were much more liberal and progressive minded in the 1870s, 1880s. And so they particularly struggled with questions like, you know, it, is there really any work to be done about trying to prove that God exists? No. What is it about religion? And they agreed that with religion, it's kind of got the same fundamental purpose as science, to orient us properly to the world around us and to make our lives better if it can. And where it can't, it's up to us to improve it. That's the progressive side. So the point of all of this human intelligence is that we are on our own. If there were ever commandments and dictates handed down from the clouds, those days are long behind us. We're on our own and we are going to have to solve our big intellectual, social and political puzzles on our own. So they were part of the democratic spirit and sort of the second generation, uh, John Dewey, George Herbert Mead, they joined pretty quickly and pragmatism was born. Charles Peirce invented the term and all he meant was 
If you're going to bother arguing about something, have a clear conception of what it is you either think really exists or you think it doesn't exist, clear enough so that we can go to experience, we can go to experimental trial, we can ask the world, what difference would it possibly make if it really exists or it doesn't? And if there isn't any real practical difference to your conception of something, you aren't really conceiving anything. It's empty. You're, it's just verbiage. You're being unphilosophical. Let's get real. So pragmatism was a let's get real movement against the kinds of very sterile rationalisms and intellectualisms. So William James became the most famous uh, before his death in uh, 1910. He was the one who had the public platform, the public lecterns, the, the, the talks across all across American cities, um, bringing it to the people. What we need in America is pragmatism. Let's get real and talk about real things that make a real difference to our lives. You're painting a very vivid picture of this uh, period of time, I guess, in the late 1800s. I'm kind of curious, someone like William James back then, how, how famous was he? There are five, count them, five, and only five so far, truly great philosophical intellectuals uh, born on American soil. And in order, they are Benjamin Franklin, who indeed enjoyed uh, international stature on both sides of the Atlantic for not just obviously being a towering intellect uh, and a world-famous scientist, uh, but also, right, he, he knew his way around politics and, and it, you know, just, just that kind of wisdom is rare. And then after that, Emerson, of the transcendentalists filled that role. And Emerson would, for his day, probably would have been the most publicly recognizable uh, name in America, um, both before and after uh, the Civil Civil War. Um, mm -hmm. More people would have seen Emerson, uh, probably than almost anybody until Robert Greene Ingersoll of the 1870s and 1880s, who was also a profound freethinker, but not a profound philosopher, so he doesn't make my top five. But then after that comes Charles Peirce. I mentioned him. Charles Peirce was first and foremost a scientist of international stature. Again, a genius intellect who made uh, stunning advances in areas of pure logic, applied logic, mathematics, and things like astronomy and geodesy, the measurement of the earth surface, he was the first person to experimentally figure out how to express the length of a meter in terms of frequency of light. Uh, the first guy to figure out an absolute standard to which we still use to this day. But he had a philosophical mind, so he ranged over all areas of philosophy. He's remembered for pragmatism mostly because of William James, the fourth on our list. William James would probably, almost certainly, have been in front of more public faces uh, during the first decade of the 1900s as practically anybody. He would have, he would have been sort of the philosopher's philosopher, both for his uh, radical psychology and his uh, bring-it-to-the-people democratic philosophy. And uh, he, he deserves equal credit with Purse, really. The fifth is John Dewey. John Dewey is the next generation, comes along. Uh, he, he quickly joins the pragmatist movement, but he manages to live the longest. <laughs> he was America's public intellectual for two generations. He died as the Cold War was opening in 1952. And he made the cover of Time magazine. Upon his death, mm -hmm. New York Times proclaimed him America's philosopher, on his 90th birthday, General Eisenhower, of course, he became President Eisenhower, telegraphed with congratulations saying, I have been the soldier of democracy. You are the philosopher of democracy. He was, of course, of international uh, stature. So that's, that's how we get to five. And not unsurprisingly, three out of the five are pragmatists. Okay. And is Dewey, this could be wildly off, but is he the Dewey Decimal System guy? Oh, I get that a lot. No, very distant cousin relation. 
<laughs> no, no. Oh, okay. That was Melville Dewey. Uh, John, John Dewey, different branch of the Dewey family from the Northeast. Dewey, Dewey was, our Dewey was from Vermont, taught at the University of Chicago, and then Columbia University for the rest of his life. Cool. I think you've given us uh, some great background, both both on yourself and the movement and the people involved. So I want to talk about the first chapter of the book, The Essential William James, which is, it's an anthology or it's a guide of, I guess, James's most popular or impactful writings. Sure. It's a greatest hits uh, textbook. Great. Okay. Yeah. Textbook. So, so kids or students are reading this in uh, maybe intro to pragmatism courses in their philosophy departments. Probably. <laughs> good, good. So my our interest here at the Anxiety Book Club, of course, is about the mind. And the first uh, part of the book deals with a lot of questions concerning that. And the, the first chapter, I think, is my favorite. And it, it asks a question that I don't know how many people are walking around asking themselves, what is an emotion? But it definitely comes up in mindfulness circles when... You're sitting on the cushion and the meditation teacher encourages you to feel the bodily sensations associated with whatever it is you're claiming to be experiencing, sadness or anger, etc. And so James has a, a very particular take on the definition of an emotion. I have it here in italics, although, uh, yeah, maybe I'll just read that and you'll maybe give me your thoughts on it. Sure. Let's just say first that if you ask some uh, a random person on the street, what is an emotion? And how does it occur? They might tell a story about a thing happening in their life and then them responding to that thing and then that emotion occurring. And they may or may not leave out the fact that the bodily sensations you experience either simultaneously or before or after have something to do with it. But James's perception is that the bodily changes follow directly from the perception of this existing fact, that fact being the mind's noticing of the bodily expression and that our feeling of the changes actually is the emotion, which is to say that there's nothing else, I guess, uh, to define an emotion. Is that his contention? Uh, it's called the James Lang theory of emotion. There's another fellow, Lang, who sort of hit upon the same thing around the same time. And the reason why this would have made sense to um, experimental neurologists, experimental and physiological psychologists, is because, number one, they noticed that they're really doesn't seem to be a quote-unquote emotional center to the brain. There is a motor portion of the cortex, of course, responsible for voluntary activity. But uh, what you find is that uh, there's a broad distribution of cognitive responsibility across most of the cortex at any given time. And that has been borne out. That's, that's still empirically confirmed uh, now. What that means is then is that uh, what we call cognition is pretty much what the entire brain is doing at any given time. Uh, there are important functions that the prefrontal cortex does, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, James pretty much hit upon it. It There doesn't seem to be a place in the brain where the emotion is processed and then it's handed off to another region of the brain where... The brain sort of thinks about what to do about it and then sends an executive willing over to the moat. And that's the old exploded associationistic psychology uh, earlier in the 18th and 19th, 1900s. But that just, that just wasn't what they were seeing in either behavior or in the brain. Instead, it's all what we would now call cognitive. It's all information processing. That's basically, and uh, James and the pragmatists who were on top of this, uh, in other words, pragmatism essentially is what happens to philosophy if you take cognitive science seriously, <laughs> right? The brain is about uh, processing information for the purpose of figuring out what is the most efficient thing to do next, given all of the constraints of time. Emotion is what later psychologists would call thinking fast, uh, mm -hmm. think uh, Kahneman. So James hit upon this. But what this means is you sort of get a counterintuitive psychological theory. What we do in real world situations is it's easy to notice first that we have been aroused into a powerful emotion. 
So we think that the sequence is scary thing, big emotion, and then the brain says, well, we better do something. And then, you know, you find yourself running away from the bear or whatever. And James says, nah, that can't, that can't be the right order of things. What is actually happening is that we are embedded in neurological feedback loops. We are constantly monitoring our bodily states. We're supposed to notice them right away, but the brain is always faster. There's a tremendous amount of um, um, perceptory inference, fast heuristics, things happening on the fringes and margins of consciousness, a concept that James helped bring into psychology as a scientific hypothesis. So we don't run away because we're afraid. Uh, the brain decides that we need to be running away, and that's why we feel the fear. We, we feel the activation of our uh, motor capacities and the adrenaline and the heart rush and, and all of that, because the brain is trying to coordinate everything sort of all at once. Got it. Got it. Okay, so let's maybe unpack that a little bit more. So in the maybe layperson's view of uh, responding to some stressor, as you spelled out, they see the bear, they feel the feeling of fear, and then the brain directs your limbs to run um, and your heart to beat faster, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas under this conception, you, whatever you is, your brain sees a bear, decides action is required and does all these things to your body. And then you claim that as something almost that you're doing instead of it being something that has already sort of been decided for you. Did I veer off course there? Or? Oh, let's not bring decision. There's a sequence of decisions. It's all a question of timing and speed. So our self-awareness, sort of what we take to be our sort of on top of it, phenomenal consciousness, we're getting a lot of feedback and, it, and it's kind of out of sequence from when it actually is happening in the brain. So your description is, you know, phenomenologically accurate. We, we see the bear, we feel the rush of emotions, and then we find ourselves thinking about, you know, what direction to run away. The brain is doing all of that, but it, it just so happens that it sort of did it in a different order. Saw the brain, got the body prepared for very fast reaction of, right, running away. So you get the adrenaline rush, the heart rate goes up, various things are happening in the digestive system, hopefully hopefully not too embarrassing. So, and then you, you get that feedback, so you feel the emotion, but the brain is already another step ahead of you because having literally juiced up the body for fast motor action, you find yourself running. But at any given stage, there's still time... Uh, for conscious control. I, I don't want to get into the whole free will debate, but James saw no contradiction with this story and the idea that, you know, we exert uh, re reflective cognitive control to various, various degrees, but that just takes time too. Everything takes time. So by the time you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't run from the bear. Maybe there's a more effective strategy, like, I don't know, standing still. So right? But that's more information processing. It's slower. That's right. The thinking slower because uh, it's a, a complicated self-reflective judgment happening in the prefrontal cortex. It's like a committee of the whole sending a, a special uh, sort of a decision to a subcommittee and the subcommittee, you know, takes some time and then comes back with a recommendation. So you find yourself only running for a few feet and then you halt and hide behind a tree or something. So we always have, you know, some degree of uh, control. It's just that the brain is not built by evolution to trust the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> the, the prefrontal cortex gets dispatches. It gets the feedback loop. It sees what's going on. But it's sort of slower. It's it's its job, uh, as evolution tells us, is more mammalian. It's less, you know, um, reptilian. Uh, obviously, because our bigger prefrontal cortexes allow for slow thinking, what we call deliberation or self-reflection, when we have time. And sometimes we have lots of time. <laughs> and other times, there's a bear. There are bears. <laughs> That's right. There are. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for making that clear. So without getting into 
big questions of whether or not uh, free will or the self exists. There's things happening in the brain, perhaps either on a different timeline and or in a, in a, at a schedule that is not exactly the one we experience um, phenomenologically or, or as conscious. Sure. And this, this all has to do with the evolved architecture of the brain. James, nobody reads James anymore, you know, for the, for the, you know, the fine tuned theories of the cortex, but James wouldn't have been surprised by any of the current theories. And they're all fairly consistent with the picture that uh, James was describing. It's the same brain. So the brain has much thicker uh, connections from uh, the fast processing, what we call the affective or the emotion, you know, when we have to take quick action, Uh, many more pathways, uh, thicker pathways, bigger architecture from the prefrontal cortex to the affective and motor areas, it's like little narrow country roads <laughs> by comparison. So that's where meditation comes in. Meditation um, does many things in the brain, but one of the things that it does is it has to overcome the, the fact that um, it takes a lot more um, you know, work, uh, habituation and effort to go top down than bottom up. We can do it. It just takes practice like anything else, like developing a good memory. You're, you're sort of working with the, uh, you know, the brain as evolved. So why, um, why do people still read James? Is, if it's not for state-of-the-art reflections on cognitive science um, or you know, the machinery of, of the brain or emotions, what is the What's the use of referring back to these pioneers? Oh, sure. Well, it's the other associated books that developed from these psychological theories. The more we know about psychology, the more we can know about everything else that's important to human beings, like anthropology. What does it mean to be human? What can we know? How does knowledge work? So every other area of philosophy has got to be affected if you take the brain and biology seriously. Now, that doesn't mean that biology textbooks are going to have all the philosophical answers. But what it does mean is that we can do philosophy a lot smarter. Here's one example. Um, I gave you one example of why meditation, um, you know, is is required to help get ahead of our emotions so they control us less and we feel like we can decide uh, how affective uh, various emotions are going to be. Another example I wanted, I think you might be interested in getting into is uh, James decided that there was good empirical and behavioral evidence for what we call the social self. James and the pragmatists rebelled against a Western paradigm going back to the Greeks, namely that what we fundamentally are is a spirit or a soul only contingently attached to the body. It's fundamentally a theological conception. And there is no empirical evidence for it whatsoever, uh, Aquinas and Descartes notwithstanding. So they took on basically most of Western philosophy and argued that the notion of a disembodied or disembodiable self or soul that was fundamentally unlike the organic body is a myth. It's just a myth. It's an illusion. And you can talk yourself into thinking that it's real, a la, you know, the Cartesian meditations and so forth. But uh, it's a myth. And psychology has the obligation of replacing it. And philosophical psychology has the responsibility that pragmatists took on of developing a plausible story consistent with evolution and what we know about human culture. We are fundamentally social selves. That is to say, like everything else, we have to learn from others how to even be a self, to be an individual. These things are created. They're not, they're not coming out of the wombs. What, what comes out of wombs are babies primed by evolution to quickly not engage in self-reflective, I think, therefore I am nonsense. Babies, small children, they're primed for rapt attention on everything that people are doing around them. We first become uh, selves by being social, figuring out how they're being social, 
And then by incorporating those habits of mentality, construct uh, selves uh, during ordinary developmental psychology. So, uh, and this is true down to this day. Developmental psychology, educational psychology is fundamentally pragmatist in nature. It has to be. I think one other utility, just purely from pleasure perspective of reading James or authors in the that day and time, is just the way that they write. It's so oh, different. Yeah. <laughs> a lost art. Yeah, yeah. So I have a, a quote here that I've been sharing with some friends that I just thought was so kind of beautifully written. So I'll just read it and maybe we'll chat about it a little bit. Sure. So he says here on the bottom of page 49, he says, as surely as the hermit crab's abdomen presupposes the existence of empty whelk shells somewhere to be found, so surely do the hounds' olfactories imply the existence, on the one hand, of deer's or fox's feet, and on the other, the tendency to follow up their tracks. The neural machinery is but a hyphen between determinate arrangements of matter outside the body and determinate impulses to inhibition or discharge within its organs. I just, the, especially that part about the hyphen, and it's just, it's it's definitely like, a, you know, inspired by Darwin, but it's just such a, a beautiful way of describing how looking at one being can give you clues about its environment and, and the things that exist to support it. Yes. And James here led to another revolution in a different area of social psychology, what became known as ecological psychology through one of his students, E.B. Holt, who further revolutionized things before World War II, and then on to James Gibson. Look it up, ecological psychology. Our brains are designed for rapt receptivity to things in the environment that are going to have to matter for organisms like ourselves. There was a similar revolution happening in Europe. Uh, Europeans were reading James, but they also had what was called Gestalt psychology, which was another rebellion against Descartes, where really uh, perception isn't about static objects that we sit around and talk about. It's about getting stuff done. We, we, We perceive the whole and then sort of dissect it in order to figure out what to do about it. And also the concept of the Umwelt from a guy named Uxkill. Um, we, we live in an environment that in some sense could only be an environment for the kind of species that we are. And different species literally live in different life worlds. The life world of a spider is very different from one of mine. What is salient and perceivable to a spider I get dimly, but I don't really pay attention to it or it's icky, but to the spider, it's life and death itself. So every organism literally lives in its sort of own special sphere of uh, what is perceptually relevant, precisely because it is a living organism with a nervous system. It's really, it's really a beautiful idea. You know, we're born, we seem to not know much. And yet, because we are part of the species that have evolved for so long, there's just so much out in the world that we're already ready to interpret or to see with our our senses, uh, even just being babies, having no knowledge of, you know, why we're here or what really to do with, you know, our eyes and our ears. Sure. And that, of course, allows pragmatism to completely dissolve the old theological uh, conundrum, right? How is it that animals are so perfectly designed to, you know, function well and live in their environments? And the correct answer is, uh, billions of years of evolution of trial and error where 99% didn't make it because they didn't quite have the nervous system designed uh, for effective survival. So what we see today is whatever managed to mutate and survive. This is Darwin's theory of evolution. And of course, the pragmatists all found it uh you know, quite plausible in general outline. So pragmatism is certainly a philosophy that takes biology and evolution most seriously. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, um, you know, in in today's day, you were mentioning, you know, Twitter, and we have access to so much information and so many things come into our perceptual fields that make it difficult uh, sometimes to notice things like bodily emotions or bodily sensations as part of emotions. Was it more common in James Day to be, 
you know, more introspective and aware of, of these kinds of things because there was less distraction or, or was James a, a meditator or was he just kind of the, of the ilk of a kind of person that notices these things about his body? James had an artist's temperament and perceptivity. There's a special kind and cadre of philosopher that shows up in every generation. They're just more poetic. They're just more literary. They're just more sensitive and in tune to the, to the richness and the texture and the color and all of the senses. And these philosophers tend to be very good at describing all of the marvelous things that human beings can do across uh, all of our cultural practices that make life enjoyable and exciting and beautiful. They, they uh, are able to say uh, brilliant things about why we make art or why we do music, which I think are just as important philosophical questions as, you know, how did we figure out science? So the, the pragmatists each had sort of their their specialties. James was um, a radical empiricist. He, he invented that label for himself. Radical, not in the sense of, you know, trying to say crazy things about what it's like to be human, but radical in the sense of radix, getting to the root of what it is in concrete, real lived experience that, uh, that is sort of uh, most existential to being human. Uh, he was an existentialist, I would classify him as, uh, which meant that he kept insisting that philosophy needs to go back and check what it's really like to live as a human being so that we don't float off into metaphysical fantasies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the end of the chapter, What is an Emotion?, uh, James makes reference to some cases of people who I think through injury probably were pa paralyzed or anesthetized or without access to, you know, parts of their body that we're normally acquainted with. And I think the purpose of bringing that up was to give him an opportunity to, I guess, falsify his theory, because if, if there were these brains in a vat um, and these people perhaps are the closest you could get to that, who don't have access to, you know, the trembling of their lips during fear or the contraction of their chest uh, when they're scared, um, that would be a, a good sign in the direction of uh, James' theory of emotions being valid. Uh, do you know how that idea stands up now that we have, I'm sure, many more cases of, of people without access to their bodies oh, in that way? Well, there are endless refinements. And that's because, of course, what James was trying to do was in an era of what could only be called the crudest experimental uh, psychology and working with various kinds of nervous pathologies. Um, but in general, uh, his his standpoint stands up. It's it's just that you know now we know so many different pathological or you know disease based or just genetic based ways that the nervous system can lack particular kinds of wiring or due to injury, have to rewire itself or with, there are so many inventive ways to trick an otherwise intact adult into, you know, thinking that their arm really isn't their arm, but they're mm. all coming back around to the same idea. We fundamentally depend on these vital feedback loops coming from our kinesthetic experience. That is to say, I can tell the difference when I'm moving my arm versus you grabbing my arm and moving it mainly because there are feedback loops. My muscles are reporting back to the brain. Yes, we're executing our contractions and relaxations and tensions. So I can tell when it's me moving my arm. If that is disrupted in any way, you get all kinds of very odd, phenomenal, uh, confused experiences. And uh, James would have been intensely interested in the results of those kinds of experiments uh, if he had lived longer. Mm -hmm. So in the in the next, well, I don't know if it's the next chapter, but in the chapter labeled the self, um, he gets into this distinction between the knower and the known, and he calls the knower um, or the you know the thing in your head or whatever it is that witnesses things. He calls that I, and then 
all the rest of it, including the social me that you were alluding to before as, as me. Um, do you know if, if someone like James would have been exposed to or influenced by any of these ideas of, of the self or the non-self from, from Buddhism? Uh, so at Harvard, during James's education and later on, Harvard was one of the few places in the Western Hemisphere where you could have uh, outstanding, what, what would have been called Oriental studies, but people expert in Sanskrit. And uh, one of James's colleagues was uh, one of these sort of world-class experts in Sanskrit and Hinduism and so on. And James was aware, even as Emerson was, you know, a generation before, of various um, uh, Hindu Buddhist uh, views on the self. But uh, researchers have gone and looked and they can find lots of, you know, similarities and parallels. But uh, James would not have needed inspiration from Eastern ways of thinking about this. Certainly not from India, because for the pragmatists, the battle over the no-self was already over. Physiological psychology and neurology told them that there wasn't a disembodied uh, self aloof or, um, you know, what, what you might call a, a what's sometimes called Cartesian materialism, uh, an inner theater of the mind where it sort of all comes together. So they already had a no self view. Uh, if there is uh, the greatest harmonization and family resemblance, it's actually with uh, Chinese thought. I'll just leave that sort of dangling. <laughs> out there. I'm by no means an expert, but John Dewey's version of this is very consistent with a Chinese way of thinking about uh, these sorts of things. But at any rate, um, what you can do is read James alongside other philosophies and religions that take radical empiricist routes to um, honestly taking a look at what really is going on in lived experience in order to make an honest assessment of what's really there, what isn't really there. And you'd be surprised. And James continually surprised his audiences by saying, for example, radical things in later works like consciousness doesn't exist. It just doesn't. Well, what James meant was consciousness as a substance, consciousness as its own ontological category, consciousness as a thing inhering in a soul that had its own sort of reality and you had to include it in your metaphysical, like, you know, metaphysical uh, box of thing. That doesn't exist. There, there is no consciousness like that. What there is, of course, is lived experience that we can be conscious to various degrees of, but consciousness is a relation. He used to call it a function. Consciousness is a function of the degree to which the awake and aware animal is sentient and sensible and responsible to the things it's got to be doing in its environment. It's about do mm. something. <laughs> Consciousness is nothing if it isn't guiding and uh, monitoring and sometimes controlling and adjusting ongoing activity. Consciousness e exists for the sake of activity, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I can hear the, pragmatist or, you know, functional perspective there and only spending time on things insofar as they help us understand uh, how other things work. So I, my question um, to follow up on that idea of whether or not he was inspired or knew about the these Buddhist thoughts about self and non-self and associated things is it seems like his project, at least in what I've read here, is is definitely about what is true and what is real and what exists in the world. And I think the mission is similar in, you know, those old Buddhist thinkers, but there also happens to be this uh, therapeutic value that's supposed to come out of some of these conclusions. You know, if you're a practicing meditator or Buddhist, you realize there's not a self, then maybe you don't need to attach yourself so closely to negative emotions. You can get on with your day. Oh, so I'm going to pause you there because James would exactly reverse that. In other words, think about what you just said and then put it in the reverse order. It's not about attachment, detaching, and then finding your true self. That, that, you've got it backwards. 
if you're coming at it from James's perspective. Flip the script. Remember, for James, who we are is who we have to be responsible to in the lived moment of getting stuff done with other people. We have relational selves, not some static self sitting on a throne issuing executive orders. Instead, who we are is essentially what roles we have to play from moment to moment and day to day uh, in cooperation with other people. And depending on who those other people are, very different selves will be put into play. It's a theatrical uh, concept. Note to existentialist lovers, read Gabriel Marcel, who's very Jamesian, especially in his later works. So if we have a theatrical self, uh, and, and James inspired another field of sociology called symbolic interactionism, uh, largely through one of his students, George Herbert Mead. So look up symbolic interactionism. But the basic idea is uh, we, we don't have a self that tries to stay the same and worries about attachment. You got, you got to be attached. Tough. You're attached. What are you going to do about it? You, you cannot detach. The only remaining question is, are you pursuing your attachments reasonably, effectively, and responsibly? That's why you have a brain to think about all of these things. People feel that attachments are a problem because they have gotten bogged down in too much inner self-reflection and trouble and problem. Now, I mean, that may be due to things unavoidable like grief or despair and, you know, you need friends. Uh, but uh, we, we take responsibility not by detaching, but by better managing, trying to figure out how to make the social flow uh, uh, work better and proceed better for all parties involved. The more we feel like individuals, uh, that is unhealthy uh, mentally for William James. A am I coming across? Yeah, not that you have to agree with it, but are you seeing how I'm trying to flip the script on attachment? I, yeah, I, I think you are. And so let me I'll, let me put the question even more simply. Is there a way to read James as, as self-help? Absolutely. But it's not about helping the self. If you're trying to help the self, you've already lost the game. You're, you're already, you're already, you're already a solitary. Uh, it, that's too individualistic for James. And indeed, I have a big problem. Pragmatism has a big problem with most of the self-help industry because it's rooted in a fallacy right in the very name. There is no such thing as the self. The more you're worried about yourself as an individual, the more society has decided to abandon you. It's a symptom of our atomistic, individualistic. Uh, free-for-all uh, society. It's a, it's a social mental problem. It's not an individual mental problem. Uh, I would refer your listeners to Thomas Zaz, S-Z-A-S-Z, -S Thomas Zaz. Uh, he probably goes overboard in attacking too much of uh, psychiatry, but um, a lot of these are manufactured modern uh mental illnesses, which are really fractures of our social selves when we feel abandoned or alienated from our proper roles in society. The answer is to fix society, right? Uh, that would be the sensible thing to do. But no, everybody has to feel like they're on their own. Well, this is, this is a problem. Yeah, yeah. I hear you on that. I, someone referred me to a book um, about lost connections and about how that's one of the big, big reasons for a lot of mental illness. Um, so I think what you're saying, a part of the fight is linguistic, right? About the word self, if we call it sure. self-help, but there's, but it's deeper than that, right? Cause you're not just picking on a poor choice of words. You're, you're picking on, you know, people's conceptions as their problems in isolation rather than as in relation to, you know, those around them or the community that doesn't exist around them that maybe should exist. To support Precisely. Them. Longevity okay. studies, when they find these remote countries or lovely 
uh, places on the planet where people are living the longest. Hint, it ain't the Mediterranean diet. It turns out the number one single factor that gets people into their 80s and 90s is whether or not they spend most of their days surrounded by familiar people in tight-knit communities where they dance. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not the physical exercise. Human beings are designed to get into synchronous activities, and that's what really makes our brains happy, doing productive and creative things with other people with spontaneity and flow and joy. Joy is what makes life worth living, and it makes people live longer. Yeah. Well, you'll get no argument for me there. I think uh, I have maybe one more question. I wasn't able to get to it, but James is also famous for that other thing he wrote, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Oh, yes. Um, is that perhaps his, his best-known um, work? And, and is that about drugs, or am I misremembering? Oh, no. <laughs> So, right. So there, there, there was an incident with nitrous oxide where he decided he had a deep metaphysical experience. And then the next day he's like, ah, I'm going to be honest. It, it was just nitrous oxide. It didn't mean anything. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, you're not going to learn anything about hallucinogenics or entheogens or anything like that from James. But what you can do from varieties of religious experience is a pragmatism applied to religion is very simple. Religions, in the sense of organized religions with creeds and theologies and superstructures and hierarchies and books and all of this stuff, um, that's not where the action is at. Religion, in that sort of organized sense of, you know, how many religions are there? Well, there are a lot. But that that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. That only exists because people are capable of having religious experiences for themselves. There were religious experiences before religion. Religion does uh, come along and try to add a layer of social cohesion, put these religious experiences to work, which is fairly pragmatic. But what that means is you can judge religions philosophically and psychologically. We can pass Judgment on better and worse religions. Two main axes, but the whole book has fabulous uh, ways of trying to understand religion psychologically, sociologically, anthropologically. The whole thing's pragmatism. But the two main axes are, is the person's own spiritual enrichment and participation in religiosity, sort of the reason why anybody would want to be religious, is that being enriched uh, to the benefit of the entire person's life? Or is it being desiccated, reduced to creeds, isolated just for Sundays? James didn't believe in that. The pragmatist thought if you're going to be religious, it should be infused with all of the cultural and social life, because that's the point. The other main axis is, is religion truly ethical? And we can judge that. Is uh, religiosity conducive to a general fellowship of humanity? Or the alternative, is it about dividing us and making us hate each other, trying to slit each other's throat for worshiping the wrong God? James said that's just that that needs to be taken out of all religion and all religiosity. It should be about the common ethical progress of humanity. And in some other works, like The Will to Believe, and in his book, Pragmatism, uh, James offers some prescriptions about keep the religiosity, get rid of the religion. Pretty radical. So if you do that, don't you just have like uh, bowling clubs? (laughs) No, quite the opposite. You allow the spiritual life to infuse all of life. It, it, some religions that are familiar to my audience, you, you know, in, 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 this, in this country, um, you know, you can look at a religion and say, well, it's just about my righteous relationship with God and do I get the right kind of afterlife? A very vertical up and down, right? The lone individual has got to worry about a lone God and climbing the right escalator. Nonsense, says James. That's not a God worth worshiping. 
bring God down to the level of the human. So the pragmatists were always much more comfortable with the divine, the truly spiritual, the ultimate, whatever you want to call it. It had better show up in all rich human experience or it's nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. It had better make a practical, enriching, and ethical difference to life, or it's not worth paying any attention to. And when communities, when societies, when cultures do that, they flourish spiritually, not because they're worshiping the one right God out of the millions that have ever been invented. That's hooey. It is because they themselves are becoming more divine. That's that's the point of religiosity. It's not the point of religion, but that's the point of religiosity. We have to take responsibility for becoming higher creatures. Nobody else is going to do it for us. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I think I could have used an enthusiastic philosophy professor like yourself when I was in undergrad. <laughs> So we're, we're close to the top of the hour. I want to give you an opportunity to, you've already made a lot of book recommendations, but to highlight any projects you're working on or things to look out for, where to find you. Oh, I'm pretty, pretty easy to find on YouTube. Uh, lots of shows over the years. Hope people enjoy them. Uh, maybe you'll drop my uh, jshookatpragmatism.org in the, in the description. Love to hear from folks. Uh, love to hear what people are interested in so that I, I might make uh, any suggestions based on sort of where their own self-explorations are going. That's what pragmatism is all about. Yeah, cool. And how, how should they find you on YouTube? Just type in John Shook and a keyword like humanism or pragmatism. Obviously, there are a few other John Shooks out there, but I'm the good looking guy with the curly hair. <laughs> Brilliant. Cool. Well, thank you uh, for joining me today. I certainly learned a lot about pragmatism and James and, you know, the best guests are the ones that kind of take the microphone and eloquently, you know, cover the the range of the topic. So I appreciate you, you doing the bulk of the work here today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're very kind for lending me your platform for so long. Mm-hmm.